Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, uh, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Now, regular listeners to the program uh, know that, you know, we've been doing a weekly update of the news every Friday. I do that with my co-host, Natasha Smith. But this month, we started the Ministry Watch Extra episodes. That's an extra episode every week. And they kind of allow us to go deep, you might say, with some of our editorial partners. And today, I'm really pleased to have on the program Julie Royce. Julie Royce runs The Royce Report, an investigative journalism website. Uh, She also has a podcast of that same name. Julie holds a bachelor's degree in history from Wheaton College, of course, the famous evangelical school right outside of Chicago, and a master's degree in broadcast journalism from the prestigious Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. And, you know, that's all, Julie, I'm going to say about your biography, because I'd like to start the program by getting you to Tell me a little about your story, uh, how you got to where you are today, and why you're doing what you do today. So, Julie, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Warren. I'm so glad to be with you and glad to discuss these issues that you know I'm passionate about and I know that you're passionate about. And there's not a whole lot of people in this investigative space in Christian journalism, so uh, I consider you uh, kind of a partner and uh, a brother in Christ. So great to be with you. Yeah, well, absolutely. I do, too. Uh, I consider you a partner in this process as well. You know, occasionally um, I have this conversation with folks about, you know, are you competitors with Julie Royce or with World Magazine or <laughs> with others? And I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, the, the field, as, as Jesus himself said, the fields, unfortunately, in this case, are white unto harvest. And yeah. <laughs> we, we need more laborers, not fewer in this uh, in this particular field. Yeah, I feel the same way. Absolutely. We're pulling for the same team. And we're really, we're on the side of truth. So uh, anyone who's out there trying to uncover truth and bring, I think, reform and restoration to the church, um, we're definitely working together, not against one another. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, Julie, uh, you know, I want to sort of peek into your editorial process, and I want to talk about uh, some of the recent stories and some of the stories, you know, going a little bit back that you've done. Sure. But... um, I want to begin with your journalistic background. I know um, you've had a pretty, you know, as I mentioned, you do have a degree in broadcast journalism. And, uh, of course, we're broadcasting now. Yeah. Podcasting was probably something that didn't exist whenever you were in college. I know it didn't exist when I was in college. But nope. uh, you began in broadcast. Tell me about the beginnings of your career and sort of how you got radicalized, if I could say it that way, <laughs> uh, by wanting to do Christian journalism. Yeah, well, it, it goes all the way back to when I was in college. I had to do an in-depth uh, kind of project for my intro to journalism class. I took this actually the first semester of my senior year, so it was kind of like near the end of my time at Wheaton, and I was a history major, which, you know, what can you do with that, right? And But I always loved to write, and I took this class, and I started doing this in-depth project, and one thing led to another, and we started uncovering some stuff in the short-term missions programs and some things that weren't right and some uh, questionable expenditures of money. And the next thing I knew, I was involved in this process that in some ways became very difficult for me because at the school, um, reporting on the school while you're attending the school can be a very uncomfortable situation. 
But it kind of lit a fire in me that um, journalism is about the truth. You know, I think of Luke as the first journalist, and this is what Paul Fromer, who was my journalism instructor, who used to be uh, an editor over at Christianity Today, he said... Luke was the first journalist. He, he wasn't an eyewitness to the events that he wrote about. Instead, he went out and he interviewed people, and he found out what happened. And that's what really prompted the, the book of Luke to give Theophilus an account that was trustworthy so that he would know that what he believes is true. And so I always felt like um, ever since that experience that journalism is about seeking the truth and I remember uh, right before I went to grad school, I was actually enrolled in seminary and Northwestern at the Medill School of Journalism, and I was really torn between the two, um, but ended up going into journalism and um, and worked for a while when I got out uh, for a CBS affiliate in Fort Wayne, Indiana as a TV reporter, worked for WGN-TV in Chicago and Fox News Chicago uh, as a news writer, and then stayed home for many years, uh, actually like 13, 14 years, just to raise my kids. And then I remember listening to uh, an advertisement on Moody Radio, because I used to listen to Moody Radio all the time. And uh, and they were saying how they needed hosts and part-time hosts for their um, network. And I thought, wow, you know, I never thought of doing that, but I could do that. And I'd actually really enjoyed doing that. And my kids were getting to the point where uh, we were considering putting them uh, in school. I was homeschooling at the time. And... Um, and I went in, and I remember, I just remember this interview kind of laughing and saying, well, I've been out of the business for like 14, 13 years, but I look a lot more like your listener than the career woman who never took the time off to be with her kids. Right. <laughs> and and I remember great. to my shock, my, my jaw was actually on my chest when they're like, yeah, that's a really good argument. And <laughs> one thing led to another. I ended up doing a, a, a network program there called Up for Debate for... Uh, about seven years, worked there, I think a total of 10 years. And it was really an, a great experience in some ways and in other ways, not so great. Well, yeah, I want to fast forward through all of those years. And I really appreciate you um, uh, giving us that background to get to that part of your experience at Moody <laughs> where it was not so great because uh, that was mm -hmm. kind of a turning point in your life and career. And, you know, uh, Julie, as you described what happened at Wheaton when you were a student, where you were having mm -hmm. to investigate Wheaton while you were still a student there, uh, in some ways, that's kind of an echo of what happened to you at um, at Moody as well, right? Because you were at Moody Radio, yep. and um, there were some problems at Moody Bible Institute. Can you sort of fill us in on that episode of your life? Sure. Yeah, I I never intended to be an investigative journalist. I mean, I would say when I first went into it, that was kind of my passion. Um, I I watched like so many of us did, right? All the President's Men, and <laughs> saw as if, if you're not familiar with that, that's. Um, about Watergate. It's the movie that was made about Watergate and the, the two Washington Post reporters who uncovered uh, the Watergate scandal with Nixon. And, and that kind of lit a fire under me. But I, I really, once I went back into it after being home, I really was enjoying being a talk show host and doing a lot of commentary. And I had just written a book called Redeeming the Feminine Soul and was just starting to get all of these speaking engagements. And in fact, oddly enough, um, I was I was booked to be the MC at Founders Week at Moody. I was booked to do this women's conference at Harvest Bible Chapel, which I'm sure we'll get to that in my experience there. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that is <laughs> ironic. I remember I was getting all these radio interviews. I mean, my, my career was actually taking off. If you're looking at the, the standard career of the Christian writer, celebrity, whatever that is, um, and it was going on that trajectory. And in the midst of that, some professors came to me and shared with me their deep concerns about the Institute, about some really heavy-handed leadership that was squashing them, some mission drift at the Institute. I also found out that uh, there were things going on at the very top. The uh, chairman of the board of trustees had this apartment that he used kind of as his own private apartment for many years, and that's against IRS rules. That's considered self-dealing. I found out that the president was had this half-a-million-dollar loan to buy a million-dollar condo. And all of these things, while at the same time the Institute was shrinking um, because of there just weren't as many students as before, and the, the donations were going down, and we had to close a Spokane campus. I mean, all of this shrinking, I'd been at the radio station and, and the radio network, and we had been cutting staff the entire time I'd been there. And so to see these kind of expenditures when at the same time uh, everything's contracting at the Institute, and then the, the bullying and the heavy-handed leadership, the whole thing, it, it really brought me to a crisis where I felt like God was saying I've uniquely puts you in this place at this time. You have the skills to expose this. At that point, I had the platform, had just sort of launched the platform a couple years earlier, but I had the platform where I could I could actually publish on this, and I didn't have to go through the standard gatekeepers of you know Christianity Today or even World Magazine or, or anybody. I could use my own platform. And so I, I really felt like it was a moment of uh, decision for me and whether I was going to follow what I felt the Lord was calling me to do. I really thought when I first published my first piece exposing some of this, that my career would be over. And I was totally prepared for that. I mean, my kids were just starting to get married. Uh, We now have one grandchild, another grandchild on the way. And I thought, this is, you know, I'll I'll spend more time with my kids and my grandkids. This will be fine. That didn't exactly happen. I published, and then that seemed to lead. One thing led to another. Um, But that's really kind of how it went down, at least the the Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah, well, and and we do need to move along because there's so many other great stories, Julie, that you've been involved with that we want to talk about. But um, that is the Cliff Notes version. But let me just ask a couple of quick questions about that, because uh, that was a few years ago now. And, um, you know, it in some ways— I wouldn't say it was a career-ending move for you. In some ways, it was a career-beginning move for you, but a, but a new kind of a career in investigative journalism. But it did end your career at Moody Radio, and it also, <laughs> though, resulted in uh, some changes at Moody Bible Institute. Can you quickly talk about those two aspects? Yeah, it was somewhat stunning. Um, initially, when I got all this information, I did a lot of reporting behind the scenes and and got a lot of uh, information and facts and interviews on the record. Before I did any publishing, I flew out to Detroit on my own dime, and I actually had a friend of mine that I knew well from California. I flew him out to come with me, and we sat down met with two trustees because that was my first desire was simply that, that Moody would do the right thing. They would see that these bad things are happening with their administration. The trustees would, would act. Um, but instead... Uh, that's not what happened. In fact, one of the the trustees, actually the, the chairman of the board, 
kind of came at me and gave what I felt was a veiled threat. And the next thing I knew, I, I, I saw this collusion going on between the trustees and the administration. And that's, that's kind of when I knew that I had to publish. And, and so I, I, I decided to do that. Um, but it was, it was a tough decision. And, um, but I'm, I'm glad I did it. I felt like it just needed to be done. And it ultimately resulted in the resignation, um, retirement, firing. How, how, how would you characterize yes. it of some senior leadership there at Moody? Yeah, it led to uh, within, honestly, I think it was like 24 hours, 48 hours at most of my, my publishing. Um, it led to the president resigning, the provost resigning. Uh, or I think he he retired. I think was the technical term. Although he's now working at Wheaton College, um, and and also the uh, COO uh, resigning as well. So it was the three top officers of the institute um, being removed essentially, and it was it was stunning to me that that happened. I didn't expect that to happen. I kind of thought I was hoping and I was praying, um, but that's what happened and. I would like to say it led to just complete overhaul and reform, but as I found in these things, and I know, Warren, probably as you've been reporting for so long as well, these kind of problems are often institutional problems, and they are systemic, and there's much more than three people at the top that are involved. And so they have changed that leadership at the top. The degree to which the culture has changed and the practices have changed I can't really say because I'm not there. Well, that, yeah, that's right. That's been my experience as well. But on the other hand, you do what you can do today and you <laughs> live to fight another mm-hmm. day, so to speak, and uh, hope that you're keeping the truth alive and that you're creating an appetite for uh, restoration and reformation. And And I just really want to affirm that, uh, Julie, and the work that you did there at Moody. For those that don't know, Moody Bible Institute is in the Chicagoland area, and also in the Chicagoland area is Harvest um, Bible Chapel, which is, of course, an organization that we just mentioned. Um, you, uh, because of your proximity there, that also allowed you to see some things that were happen, happening at what I would consider to be another kind of pivotal moment in your uh, career as investigative journalist, and that is breaking a lot of the story around James McDonald. Can you quickly talk about that situation as well? Sure. Well, I think it was around, I I was fired from Moody in January. I continued to report on some things for the next few months. And I think it was either the end of March, early April, a former pastor at Harvest reached out to me and had seen what I did at Moody. And he said, would you please look into what's happening with James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel. And I remember my first response was to him was like, I need to do another investigation like that, like I need a hole in the head, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, this has cost me dearly. This has been painful. I've had a lot of things publicly said about me that just really aren't nice. And um, I I just wasn't really sure that that's what I wanted to do at all. And he was like, well, will you just listen to our story? And I remember getting on the the phone with both he and his wife. It was actually, I I didn't even want to take time for it. I was driving to Kentucky to visit my parents with my husband. And I'm like, well, you know, if I can fit this into my my road trip, fine, I'll listen. And I listened. And, you know, I think there's something with, I'm guessing you have this too. I think a lot of journalists do. It's kind of like this internal justice meter. And when that thing gets tripped, it's like you can't let go of the story. At least that's how I feel with it. And when I heard their story and I realized the degree to which there was abuse and corruption going on there, and again, feeling like, you know, who's going to take on James McDonald? I mean, he's huge. 
And um, I, I just, I didn't really trust that a lot of the Christian media would be willing to do that because there's just too much at stake. And so I just began reporting and gathering stories and just one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I got I got sued by James McDonald. And at that point, it was the point of no return. Yeah, that's when it gets serious, whenever you get sued. But uh, I've also had a mentor years ago, Julie, who told me that you're not really a grown-up until you've been sued. So I guess you've got that going <laughs> for you, right? I guess so. Have you been sued, Warren? No, no. Actually, for my journalism, I haven't been sued. I've been threatened <laughs> several times, but um, sure. you know, I've not been sued. And of course, you know, one—I I don't mean to go down this rabbit trail too far, but you know, the First Amendment is a wonderful uh, defense for a journalist, and also the truth is a wonderful defense uh, for a journalist. You can, as long as what you say is true you will win a, a lawsuit. Now, it can be a real pain to get sued, but um, that's at least so far in our culture, um, the combination of the truth and the First Amendment stand on the journalist's side. It does. At the same time, the costs are so prohibitive, and it's such a, a scare tactic that people use. That's that right. I, I think yep. it does really shut people down. And one particular thing, when I was sued, it was before I had published anything. It's simply that I began to reach out to Harvest and James McDonald to, to hear their side of the story. And the next thing you know, I get slapped with this lawsuit. What a lot of people don't know is that that lawsuit initially was a temporary restraining order. Wow. So he was trying to get the courts to shut me down, which is known as something called prior restraint. And you, you cannot do that. You cannot shut down journalists, thank God, in, in our society because of the Constitution and because of the First Amendment. Um, and so that was thrown out. And eventually I prevailed on on the lawsuit, which again, it wasn't just me, it was a, a couple of bloggers and their wives who had never published a thing either, who got sued. But that ended up being, I think, James McDonald's undoing in a lot of ways, because it gave me subpoena power, <laughs> which was great. Well, that's right, because that's the other thing about when you get sued, then you have the opportunity to uh, go through a discovery process that usually uncovers more than what you were reporting on in the first place. So, um, yeah, that's that. there's also that as well. Well, you know, Julie, we've got to take a break. Uh, I want to dig uh, some more into some stories that um, you've been working on and also just talk a little bit more about process in just a minute. Um, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the story about Liberty University. That's a story that you and I have both been covering. Mm -hmm. And um, our listeners, of course, can see that coverage on our respective websites. But I'm more interested, again, in talking about how we cover this story. Um, there's clearly some non-family-friendly aspects to this story, and I want to get your perspective on how to uh, best cover those, including whenever they involve photography. Julie, let me just pause here and remind everyone that you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. My guest this week is Julie Royce. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Warren Smith with Ministry Watch, and my guest this week on this Ministry Watch Extra episode is Julie Royce of the Royce Report. You know, Julie, uh, before the break, I said that we I wanted to dive into a couple of more recent stories and talk a little bit about process. One of those stories, as I also mentioned before the break, is the story of Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University. Just a very quick summary. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. posted some um, some. St- photos on Instagram that caused a lot of people to question uh, his judgment, including finally his own board of directors. They asked him to take an indefinite leave of absence, which of course he is on right now. Since then, some other aspects of that story have come out. And I know you've been following that story and in fact plan uh, at least one more story in the near future. I hope I'm not giving too much away here. But um, Tell me about this story from your perspective, because there are obviously some salacious details. There are, um, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, has his own has a constituency. He's been very successful at Liberty. He's been an, uh, a supporter of President Trump. So in some ways, he's become a proxy uh, for the criticism of President Trump. But on the other hand, if you criticize him, you're considered, you know, kind of to be evil because you're, you know, criticizing Trump's man. All of these kind of ancillary issues are in the mix here. How does all that hit you, Julie? And how did it hit you as you were reporting this story? Well, Jerry Falwell Jr. has had some salacious details going back pretty far. I mean, the the pool boy thing, the supposed pictures of his wife, Becky, that are very intimate and in a French-made costume. You know, I don't know. He, those pictures have never been produced. But these are the sorts of reports that have been coming out about Jerry Falwell Jr. And here he is, the president of the largest Christian university in the country. But you're right. I think his alignment with Donald Trump made it very difficult to report on him because everybody, you know, if you're not for Jerry Falwell, you must be a liberal, right? You know, that was kind of the kind of reaction that you would see sometimes in the Christian community. I do think that's changed after this latest story. And that is one where, if you haven't seen it, there's a picture of Jerry Falwell Jr. He's on his yacht. Actually, it's not his yacht. It's one he had rented. I I hear it rents for like $200,000 a day, but there's some uh, connection with Liberty where they get to use that. Wasn't supposed to be used for private parties, I don't think. But anyway, this picture of him, he posts on Instagram with him, with his shirt hiked up uh, alongside another woman, and she has her shirt hiked up, but probably more uh, even racier than that. I mean, they have their pants unzipped. And it's a shocking photo. I remember when it first came out on Twitter, there was a Houston Chronicle reporter who put it out there on Twitter. And I remember seeing that and going, oh, wow. I don't know if I want to be the first one to report that in a story. <laughs> you know, it's just one of right. those things where you yep. you just kind of have that, mm, man, that, I mean, it's news. You, you can't get away from the fact that it's news and that people have a right to know this because this is a Christian university, is it a nonprofit university, even though it's making a lot of money. It's, it's a nonprofit though, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. It is a nonprofit, but you're right. It's making a lot of money. But Julie, let me pause you there because you said something that kind of 
caused a, a light bulb to go off in my brain. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you said you didn't want to be the first to report it, and I had exactly the same reaction. I mean, it, it's uh, and I know you a bit, yeah. you know, well enough to know that you're competitive, and I'm competitive, and we like to break stories. Yeah. We like to be the first to report on a story, and yet. Um, you know, this story really caused, clearly it caused you and I'll, and I'll say it caused me a lot of anxiety and a lot of heartburn. I didn't want to be the first to report it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to wait and see whether, you know, others would report it, whether it, be, you know, at some point a story becomes one that you can't avoid, that you have to say something about it or people will think that you're intentionally avoiding it, especially for folks like us right. who are in the investigative journalism world. But, but man, uh, uh, you know, that's not something that I wanted to, wanted to write about, but you know, you can't ignore these kinds of stories at some point. It is such an an opposite impulse to, as you say, anything we normally face, because you, you do want to be the first one. But yeah, on this one, it, it just was so salacious and I think relevant. And I think the friendly atheists were the first two to publish on it. Yeah. And when, when I saw Relevant had published on it and kind of felt like, I mean, I was kind of in a holding pattern. I'm not saying I wouldn't have published had they not. I probably would have. Uh, I was also on vacation, which I was like, really? This has to break while I'm on vacation? I then felt that there was definitely license to publish. This photo was already out there, and it was an important story. But again, boy, it's just one. You don't want to be tabloid in the way that you do things, and you don't want to put out clickbait, and you just, you really want to... You want to bring that information in a way that's as respectable as possible and that shares as little dirt as possible, yet at the same time, you know, brings things to light that need to be brought to light. So I was glad that it that it came out. I know you reported on it. I reported on it. Everybody's reported on it now. But now we're also seeing that that one photo is actually more of the tip of the iceberg of some of the social media behavior of Jerry Falwell Jr., Right, right. Well, let, I want to talk very, very briefly, uh, Julie. We got to move on to other other issues, but uh, sure. about the photos themselves, uh, and just you know how you made a d- decision. And I know you've got some other stories that you're working on that will probably involve more photos. Uh, we chose at Ministry Watch. Um, we published the photo, but we cropped it so that you couldn't see the most, I guess you could say, salacious aspects of that photo. On the other hand. By not seeing um, those salacious aspects, you you might have had the idea that Jerry Falwell was being, you know, punished for something that wasn't so bad when, in fact, it really was bad. So I went back and forth. I had a lot of anxiety about, you know, how to publish that photo and whether we should at all. So I don't um, uh, criticize anyone who chose to publish the photo. And that was, in fact, ultimately one of the reasons why we decided not to publish the unedited photo was because we knew that people could find it out there. What are the standards and principles, Julie, that you use whenever you're making these decisions? You know, I wish there was a manual on this, right? Like you could just go to the manual and say, oh, in, in this case, this is exactly what you do. But it's not like that, and you know that. This is all, it's a discernment and it's a judgment call so much of the time. Um, One of the things I do, I didn't do it in this particular story, but is I'll I'll call you. I'll call, I have a a buddy who worked for 
two decades at the Chicago Tribune, and he's also a Moody graduate. I'll call him. There's a there's a, a small group of people that I will call. I always show it to my husband almost every time. Um, I'll show things to my kids, you know. <laughs> but mostly, I'm looking for that that you know Holy Spirit to guide me through that process and. And, you know, clearly, Scripture reveals some pretty personal details about certain leaders. So I think there is license to do that. And when there needs to be someone called out in leadership, that needs to happen. And it, even First Timothy 5.20 says very clearly about how when you have an elder, it's talking about specifically, uh, who is sinning to publicly expose him. But there is just this principle in Scripture um, in Ephesians, for example, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So there is this license, and even I would say command, to expose the evil deeds of those who are in leadership and call them yep. to repentance. It's not to destroy them. We don't want to destroy them. What we want to see is exactly what God's heart is, and that is that they would come to repentance and that there would be a refining. And so with this, do do I have you know a stated... Uh, when, <laughs> when, when a uh, university president has his pants unzipped in a picture, what do you do? Um, no, I don't. And it's just one of those where uh, I feel like you have to discern it. And, and I'm sure there's people, don't, don't you, Warren, that you call on and, you know, you pray over it and you ask the Lord for guidance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's no question about it that, that you know, prayer and discernment has to go into this job. Um, if it doesn't, um, number one, I, I just uh, don't know how you could do it really to the glory of God if, if that wasn't involved. And number two, you just make some really bad decisions. And, and I think you're right, wise counsel. I really, um, I mean, I appreciate you mentioning that you call me. I, it's an honor to get those calls from you. And of course, you know, I call you a lot. We share stories back and forth, even yeah. though, you know, we're in separate organizations where we are in some ways a part of each other's process. And I'd just also like to add for, you know, our listeners that, that might, you know, still be concerned about, uh, you know, these kinds of topics. You know, I, I look at history, Julie, and I see, you know, the photograph of Emmett Till's battered face in an open mm, casket mm -hmm. uh, as being a defining moment in the civil rights movement. Those pictures of the Holocaust at the mm -hmm. end of World War II, I really caused, I think really caused the world to come face to face with that horror and, and kind of resolve that something like that would never happen again. And I think it, you know, it took those photos. I, you know, I know even in our own day, um, photos of aborted babies often cause people uh, some squeamishness, even those in the pro-life movement. But I'm one of those who happens to believe that, um, you know, that we've got to look into the, uh, we got to look at the truth. And uh, sometimes that truth is painful, even in scripture, sometimes that truth is R-rated. But, um, but, you know, that's a part of our mission. That's a part of our calling. Uh, and as you say, sometimes we're even commanded to do so. Yeah. Well, I, I know even now I've, I've got a video that I'm wrestling with, but it's, it's been posted on Instagram as well, so it's actually already out there publicly. And so I'm, I'm wrestling over that, but I'm like, here it is. It's already in the public space. And, and I think when it comes to Jerry Falwell Jr., this is critical that, that there be this kind of public pressure applied now while the trustees are still figuring out what to do while he's on this indefinite leave of absence. And I, I'm really praying that they make a good, wise decision. 
Well, speaking of good and wise decisions, one more story, Julie, before we sort of wrap things up, and that's the story of John MacArthur and Grace Community Church out in California. That's been a huge story in the news. I know on our website, uh, every time I uh, publish something about this issue, um, I, I get a little surge in page views. Um, <laughs> and once again, this has been kind of one of those stories that's uh, it is what it is, but it's also about so much more. It's about the political and cultural conversation that we're having around COVID-19 and whether to open up and whether to not open up. It's about religious liberty. It's about civil disobedience. It's about whether you support Trump or don't support Trump, even uh, whenever, you know, he's calling for us to kind of, you know, get back to things. So uh, give me your thoughts about that story, how you covered it, and kind of where you come down on it. I've tried to cover it as dispassionately as possible because there's so much passion out there on either side. I I feel actually I got an email and I think it was like a, a Twitter IM and it was just so funny to me. One complaining that I had bias for John MacArthur and for them holding these public services despite the government telling them that they can't and that they need to to not meet publicly in person because of COVID and because of spreading it. So when I get people on both sides complaining that I'm biased, I felt like writing back and saying, well, you know, you're showing me that I must be doing my job right, because <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do in, in so many of these stories is report the truth and the facts objectively and allow the reader uh, to decide. And before the Lord, have them engage in their own discernment process. So that's what I've tried to do. I will say there are two very, very different audiences that I have, and and they're actually on two different social media platforms. My Facebook audience was largely gathered when I was a radio host at Moody Radio. And so that audience tends to be very staunchly behind John MacArthur because he would be in kind of that same tribe with Moody. And they are, if you just look at the Facebook comments, they're very, very strongly behind him and very anti anybody who would oppose MacArthur meeting. And on Twitter, what I found is I have much more of an audience that came when I was doing the Harvest reporting. And so what I have there, because James McDonald had been so abusive to so many people over such a long period of time, that what I have is a lot of abuse survivors on Twitter. And they tend to not be as sympathetic towards MacArthur because of some of his comments and behavior, like his comment, you know, the go home comment towards Beth Moore. But uh, there's more to it than that. He's Masters has um, been disciplined by the accreditation because of supposedly uh, a culture of fostering a culture of fear and intimidation. And so that speaks to that audience. And so they tend to be on the other side. And it's really interesting to me to watch both Facebook and Twitter and how disparate the responses have been. And again, I, I told a, a friend of mine, I said, you know, I'm really agnostic when it comes to this whole COVID thing. I, I know it's become so incredibly politicized. And um, and I, I honestly, I'm I'm trying to weigh the facts on both sides of it. Well, Julie, um, unfortunately, um, we've got to bring our time to a close. We, I've got so many more topics I want to talk to you about, <laughs> but that also allows me to say this, that you're going to be a regular guest on this podcast, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, we're about once a month, hopefully going to get back together, and um, we'll be able to continue this conversation about sort of the philosophy the uh, and the, the similarities and differences between Ministry Watch and the Royce Report, and also, of course, to talk about 
the stories that uh, you've been working on in the time since we last spoke. So let me just say, Julie, thanks again for being on the program today. Um, thanks uh, for the work that you're doing over at the Royce Report. And uh, also want to mention to everyone that if you want to look at some of the stories that Julie's done, recently, but also going back into her archives, you can go to her website, which is theroycereport.com. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, she has her own podcast. And if you go to theroycereport.com, you can also click through to uh, find out how to subscribe to her podcast as well. Uh, Ministry Watch, of course, any of the stories that um, we've talked about that we've been reporting on, you can go to ministrywatch.com and uh, all those stories will be right there. We've got a pretty good search engine as well that if you don't see those stories right on the front page, you can uh, just uh, search on a keyword and you'll be able to find that story pretty quickly. A couple of housekeeping items before we go. We'd love for you to rate the podcast uh, for reasons that I don't quite understand. The more ratings we have, the more likely it is uh, that our program will be picked up by search engines. So rate the program on your podcast app. It is simple. It is absolutely free, and it's a great way for you to uh, support the program. If you find the podcast app a little complicated, or maybe you're listening to this on some other medium, for example, streaming on the website, you can, as the kids say, kick it old school and just tell a friend. Uh, That's how we get a lot of our readers and listeners is just friends telling friends. So if you do that, that's another great way to support the program. And finally, both Julie's um, Enterprise, The Royce Report, and Ours here at Ministry Watch are donor-supported, and you can make a financial gift to either the Royce Report or to Ministry Watch by going to our respective websites, and the donate buttons are pretty prominent on the front page of both of our sites. So, Julie, again, let me just say thanks for being on the program today. Well, thank you, Warren, and thank you for the work you do. Keep up the good work. You bet. I'll do my best, and the same to you. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy, and we get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Christina Darnell. I'm Warren Smith, along with today's co-host, Julie Royce, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 